You're listening to Senior Times Podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, Expressway Travel Department and Doro Phones, for making this podcast possible. Mary Kennedy here, and you're welcome to my first series of Senior Times Podcasts. Now, it's often been said that we are a nation of storytellers. I believe that to be true, and I am hugely impressed by the number and the quality of women writers in this country. On this podcast, my guest is Liz Nugent. Liz, you are very welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. You have had phenomenal success with your four novels to date, but... As a reader, particularly me as a reader, you have to be in the right frame of mind (laughs) to sit down and tackle them. Because um, I want to give an example of how brilliant but kind of hard and cruel your writing can be. So I'm going to read a passage from your latest book, Our Little Cruelties. It's about three brothers and they're young and they're playing in the back garden. And uh, there's Will and Brian and Luke. The dog leapt into the air and crashed into the middle of us, knocking us all to the ground like skittles. Mum came barreling out of the sitting room, capsizing the ironing board with a heavy table lamp in one hand. It was the closest thing she could grab. She swung it towards the dog and pulled at William and me with her free hand and ran with us towards the house. Luke was left out there cornered by the dog, screaming hysterical as he reached for one of the abandoned sticks. But I watched as the jaws of the dog wrenched his ankle and the animal tossed its head from side to side as if trying to unscrew Luke's foot from his leg. I turned away then in terror but caught William watching the scene unfolding, his eyes narrowing as if studying the incident for something he might like to explain later. I looked at Mum, who was watching also, blank-eyed. Get Luke, I screamed. She lurched outside again, slamming the doors behind her to keep us safe, and this time she had the pipe of the hoover in her hand. She landed it squarely on the dog's head and it released its grip on Luke's leg, running away down the side passage, never to be seen again. She ran and closed the gate behind it before returning to Luke, whose lower leg was a bloody mess. He was no longer crying, but pale and shaking. Why did you leave me out there? He shrieked. William and I looked at each other. We did not have the vocabulary then to articulate what we had always felt. But somehow, from that day, we knew that we were loved more. Liz, even now, I've read the book, I still find it hard to read that passage without becoming emotional. You just see the the, yeah. the little lad, the youngest, left out there. What was it like or what is it like for you to write something like it, that? It, it's, it's, I, I always like to sow the seeds because in, in, in the later story, I mean, the, the book spans the lives of these brothers, which pretty much spans my lifetime. So it goes from the early 70s, which is their first sort of conscious memories to present day, pretty much. And I'm, I've just turned 53. So it's really my lifetime. And because I follow the characters through the course of their entire lives, I do want to show what forms these characters, what forms their as adults. Because Luke, that, that abandoned child, grows up to be a very, very damaged adult. 
And I just need to sow the seeds for how, for how he becomes the man that he becomes. The mother, though, um, to kind of favour yeah. two sons over a third and to actually leave him out there with an Alsatian is, yeah. uh, is mind-boggling. Yeah, it's horrific. But she has her own reasons, which are explained as well later in, in the book. She has her own reasons for, um, for disfavouring, is that a word? Disfavouring her, her youngest son. Mm-hmm. And she is also very besotted with her oldest son. Not terribly interested in her second son, but her oldest son, Will, can do no wrong. I mean, he is the golden child. She supports him in everything he does. Uh, Brian, she can take him or leave him. But Luke, her youngest son, she absolutely despises. And, you know, she pretty much ruins his life. When you finish writing a passage like that, uh, do you kind of... um have to go and go for a walk or uh, get it out of your system? <laughs> no, I, I swear to God, I must be so stone-hearted. I literally close the laptop and go and put on the kettle or, you know, watch a bit of Netflix or, like, as soon as I close the laptop, I leave those characters behind. I don't I don't carry them around with me, but I, I would often think about, oh, I wonder... You know, how can how can that play into some... I wonder, can I have a shadow of that in a later scene? So I'll make a note on my phone, you know, just to say mm, that that might, you know, there might be some consequences to that later on. And actually there was going to be, but they got edited out in the final uh, version of the book. But, um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I very easily leave the characters behind, very I- easily. Are you conscious when you uh, write a, a really harrowing passage like that of the the reaction that the reader will have to it? Um, I'm, I'm no, I'm not really. Uh, I, I'm not actually thinking of the reader. I am thinking of the characters, and I'm thinking of you know what the characters' natural reactions would be. I'm thinking of like what is. What is the right thing for the character to do? What is the obvious thing for the character to do? And then I find a reason for that not to be possible so that the character is forced to take the wrong course of action. Because I don't plot my stories. I don't plot the books at all. I just let the characters make bad decisions and that's where you get your plot. (laughs) It seems like bizarre, but I'm pretty much make it up as I go along. I was about to ask you, yeah. like when you sit down then to start a novel, yeah. you really just have a um, a launching pad, yeah. do you? Yeah. I mean, in this in in this one, in Our Little Cruelties, it opens with the funeral. Um, but I didn't know who was in the coffin until I got to that final chapter. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah, it could have been any one of the three brothers, but uh, I didn't decide until I got to the end. It's funny you should say that because I didn't know either until the very end of the book who was it could have been any of the three that was exactly. in that coffin. Yeah. But you see if I if I if I know who it's going to be well then I think I will probably unconsciously or subconsciously write some clues into the book. So if I don't know then 
it's going to be a surprise to the to the reader as well. You know, the the if if I don't know, then the reader can't guess. That's the way I I work. You know, I you know in in um, Skin Deep, I didn't know what was going to happen when I started those books. I did not know where those characters were going to end up. Mm-hmm. So. Do you find that when you're writing these passages, you're drawing on something within yourself? I mean, is any of it kind of from your own background, your own psyche? Um, not particularly. I mean, I must have a very dark, I must have a very dark mind to come up with this. But I haven't quite put my finger on where it comes from. Because in my daily life, I am extremely... Uh, upbeat and cheerful i i'm lucky lucky enough not to suffer from depression or anxiety too much although you know the pandemic has thrown me into a bit of a spin but i think that's true for all of us but um i'm you know i'm not somebody who dwells on the dark side of life too much but i do like it in fiction in the fiction that i read i enjoy the darker novels you know so um i i guess i i write the books that i would like to read looking through the the books that you've written there's a a kind of um a keeping up appearances type vibe Mm. in them um and you know other things are happening behind closed doors and that is very true to reality as well isn't it yeah i think the middle classes get away with an awful lot and that's why i um you know, I, most of my books are set among the middle classes who get away with the most horrendous things and hide in plain sight. You know, they just, um, they're sort of untouchable in a way. So I think, you know, that the, there's darkness all around of us and all of these people are, you know, supposedly, you know, university educated, came from supposedly good families, you know, very middle class or upper class backgrounds. And yet they get away with murder in a lot of cases. What was your own background growing up and did that inform your writing? My dad was a lawyer and... um, because of mental health issues and alcoholism, he stopped working when he was about 40 or thereabouts. But my mother was determined to send us to good private schools. So she started an antique business um, to, to fund this private education. So we all went to very good private schools, but couldn't afford to keep up with the Joneses. Like I was wearing secondhand uniforms because our uniforms were the type of uniforms that you could only buy in Arnott's, for example. And they were extremely expensive, but there was a shop in, in Monkstown, I think, called Designs on You, where you could get your um, your particular school uniform uh, secondhand. So I was a regular visitor to that shop. And I do remember at one stage my my uniform being so threadbare that the school secretary came to me and said, um, come with me to the lost property room and kitted me out with an entire new uniform. And what did that because feel like? I, I, it just felt like I could never 
I could never measure up, that I I was passing myself off as I, I didn't I didn't financially belong in, with this group of of friends. And you know, I it's funny now I have more friends from that class in school than I did at the time because I isolated myself. Mm. I was the one who withdrew from them, really, because I felt I didn't fit in or I couldn't keep up or if they were all going together on holidays to Daddy's Villa in Fangarola, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was going to my granny's house in Skibbereen, you know, um, which is just, uh, probably just as much fun. But, but um, that's pressure, though. That That is pressure. And I did feel, I did feel the, the not a class difference, but, 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 um, I felt that I was in a, in a place that I couldn't compete, I suppose. There were two instances in your childhood um, which must have been very, very influential as you grew up. When you were six, you had an accident and when you were seven, your parents separated. Yes, when I actually, when I was seven, I think I had the accident. Um, actually, nobody quite remembers whether I was six or seven uh, because, you know, my mother had six children. My father had three more. So, you know, I have eight siblings. <laughs> so it's hard to keep up with who had an accident <laughs> when. And uh, in fact, a- another brother had a brain hemorrhage subsequently. But my brain hemorrhage happened when I, I was either six or seven when I fell over the banisters. Um, I was trying to slide down the banisters and missed. And uh, so I ended up with a lifelong injury, which affects me to this day. Um, I type with one hand. I have no use of my right hand, so all of my books are typed with one hand. Um, um, I limp with my right leg. And recently, just in the last year, I have had further injuries and accidents with 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 that leg which are causing uh quite some serious mobility issues so um hopefully they might get sorted soon fingers crossed but um my parents separating um the funny thing is i was never sat down and told dad is gone you know, or dad has left. Uh, my older siblings were, but I was so young and my younger brother was only, he's five years older than me, so he would have been one or two when it happened. So we weren't actually told. We just gradually realised that dad wasn't there because even when, I suppose even when dad was there, he wasn't there because he was behind the newspaper or... If he was drinking, he was great fun. Like he would, you know, he was the person who, before the brain hemorrhage, taught me how to dance. He would put his feet, he would put my feet on his feet and we would dance around the kitchen to Leroy <laughs> Brown. And, you know, it was great fun. And, um, but, uh, yeah, so it, it only dawned on me gradually that Dad had left. But it seemed at the time... Like we're talking about 1974 or something like that at the time. 
And it was something that was not spoken of, definitely not spoken of. And I didn't tell anybody in my school, in my class, even among my closest friends until maybe five years later. And I remember telling somebody and then going back the next day and telling them that I'd made it up because I felt so ashamed, Mm. you know. And I don't know why I felt shame because obviously (laughs) it wasn't my fault, but it was such a taboo at that time to have parents who were separated. Of course, as I later realized, when, you know, I meet those classmates now, and we are still actually quite a close-knit group, but when I meet those uh, classmates now, um, there were several of them who had separated parents, but it was just kept quiet. We were the only family that were out in the open. We didn't keep it a secret. Um, We, you know, I, I think it became obvious because my father was never at you know, he was gone, like he was absent. He was drinking for a period and then, you know, so he wouldn't turn up to anything. And then he moved down the country and um, and then he met uh, a wonderful lady called Maria who really um, saved him, you know. And um, they had three children um, who I am extremely close to and fond of. And I certainly would think of them as my full siblings, as full as all of my other siblings. Mm -hmm. So us nine children now have a great relationship and great WhatsApp chats. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we're we're all very close. So um, I actually think it's probably um, my parents separating gave me three wonderful sisters And um, I think they were so unsuited as a couple when I think about it. I think um, uh, it's probably a very good thing that they separated and a good thing for the entire family that they separated. And both were happier afterwards. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, We're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Here's your chance to win a new Doro 7030 feature phone with access to WhatsApp and Facebook. Designed specifically for seniors and available to buy in Vodafone stores or online. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text. One that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. At Doro, they are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life without compromise. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a newly launched Doro 7030 handset is go to the website www.seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age.
Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. Say hello to our Premium Plus e-paper bundle. The interactive replica edition of the Irish Independent, Sunday Independent and The Herald. Every paper, every day, delivered to your tablet, phone or desktop for less than €3.50 per week. Subscribe at independent.ie. Up close and independent. What was it like for you growing up um, with this father? I never saw a dark side to his alcoholism because I, I presume I was in bed when it got, you know, rough or whatever. Not that he was violent. I, I don't want to give that impression. But, um, I mean, he's still alive. He has dementia. He's in a care home. Haven't been able to see him in about 16 weeks. Um, but he is not aware of the world anymore and it's terribly sad so um I don't feel like there's nothing I'm telling you that he wouldn't tell you himself he's very honest and open about his life so you know I wouldn't really have been aware of his alcoholism and I remember him sitting down to tell us one time I think we were on the way to um to Glenstall to my brother's sports day and um he bought us to dinner we stopped off in a hotel in nina i think and um he told us all that he was an alcoholic and i was like none the wiser because i didn't know what an alcoholic was and he said it's because i drink too much alcohol and i didn't even know what alcohol was so it it, it was kind of um it was okay and um I suppose there were, when I look back, there were times when he was still drinking, when he would have, you know, he when he would have custody, because there were so many of us, he, because he had six children with my mother, mm-hmm. he couldn't take all six of us out on a weekend. So we would take it in turns to have our Saturday with Dad. And um, our Saturday with Dad would usually be in a pub. Um, but that was quite fun for a child because you'd be spoiled and you know other people would be buying you club orange and crisps crisps and <laughs> chocolate snack bars so I didn't I didn't feel deprived mm-hmm. and of course he drove uh he drank drank drove mm-hmm. drank drove drunk drove oh, yeah <laughs> whatever um yeah um but you know, I, I don't know if that was even such a taboo thing in those days, um, in the in the early to mid seventies. I think a lot of people did that. So um, yeah, he never, he never. Uh, I mean, he did crash cars several times, um, but only ever injured himself. Thank God. Where did the love of writing come from? Him. Yeah, he um, he uh, on on those Saturdays when he didn't bring me to the pub, he would bring me to the library, and got me my library card, and we would um, particularly later on when he stopped drinking, we would go to the library, we would take out two books, and we would spend the day reading them because I don't think he had a television, mm-hmm. or if he did, it only had two channels and. You know, in, in those days, I think maybe television started at 
12 o'clock or 6 o'clock or something. I can't remember. Like, God, I feel so old when I'm talking about this. But, um, uh, yeah, so reading was, he instilled in me a love of reading. And you can't be a writer without being a reader. So, yeah, it, it was... Um, yeah, and we would read all kinds of things and he would read books and pass them to me. I remember, you know, age, age 10, reading Jaws um, and The Godfather and um, Jonathan Livingston Siegel and... Um, well, I can see now with Jaws and uh, The Godfather where yeah, the interest in crime yeah. writing comes from. Well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> Um, and even, like, funny enough, when, when you read those as an adult, uh, Jaws in particular is very racy and there's a lot of sex in it that doesn't make <laughs> it into the film. But because I was a child, those scenes went completely over my head. So I would say to parents within reason, don't censor your children's reading. You know, let them read what they want because if they don't understand it, it will go over their head. Or they might ask you a question and then you get the opportunity to explain something to them, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's, 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 um, I think children should really get a bit of a free reign over their reading to develop their reading skills. I've heard it said of you in an interview at some point that you said uh, you didn't choose the crime genre, it chose you. And listening to you talk about your, your reading <laughs> material when you were with your dad, I couldn't see well, why. I also, read, I also read Olivina Blyton's Toy Time <laughs> Tales. And yeah, I guess, I guess the, I was always drawn to the darker stuff. I was drawn to the darker stories. Why do you think the the dark stories and crime are so popular in fiction? Well, I would I I have always said that in life, in true life, in real life, it's not always fair and often the bad guy gets away with it. So, I think in crime fiction generally the bad guy gets caught. So there's there's a satisfaction in crime fiction. Now, in my novels, I don't necessarily give you that satisfaction. There is uh, there is justice at the end of nearly all of the novels, but not justice that is meted out by the justice system. It's a different kind of justice. There is comeuppance generally um, for all of the characters you also deal with um, issues of the day, like there's references in Our Little Cruelties to the Me Too movement, yeah. to the power of social media. Yeah, um, to the equal marriage referendum. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's whatever is going on in my head at the time when I'm writing the book makes it into the book, you know. And um, particularly when I was writing Skin Deep, um, the abortion referendum was very much to the fore. So... I decided I would present both sides of it with one older, very religious character and one young uh, character who finds herself pregnant and doesn't want to be pregnant. And I, I, you know, I presented both sides of the argument so that people could weigh up and, and see for themselves. 
I said at the beginning of our conversation, Liz, that you had been very successful with your four novels and you've won so many awards. Um, and you are, congratulations, shortlisted for the Irish Book Awards again uh, this time around. Thank you. Uh, they'll be happening quite soon now. Uh, November. The end of November. The end of yeah. November, yeah. Do these awards matter? Are they important to you? Um, oh, yeah, I mean... They're hugely important. I mean, getting validation for what you do is, um, and especially, I think especially the Irish Book Awards because there's there's an Academy vote and there's also a public vote. So you know that it's readers voting and that's, that's incredibly touching to think that readers have gone to the trouble of signing into this website and you know, ticking your name on a box and entering it. It's um, it's a it's it's a huge privilege and uh, and a, a great honor. And um, I'm extremely grateful for the awards that I've won. Um, and uh, humbled is a strange word because uh, you know I, I think it's misused a lot. But I am. Truly honoured by everything that I have, I have done because I still, um, to this day, suffer from imposter syndrome, and I don't think I'll ever get rid of it. Seriously? Yeah. And I, the 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 good thing, I, the thing that reassures me most is that Marion Keys, my good friend, who has sold forty million upwards of forty million copies of books, also suffers from imposter syndrome. We, you know, we think that any of these days we are going to be found out. Oh, my goodness. That we are going Let to go be, out from here. Yeah. They're definitely not an imposter, Mike. It's uh, a few well, page turners. Well, thank you, but <laughs> it doesn't It doesn't always feel like that. And you go, you really tunnel down into the, the human psyche to to discover the, the dark side, you know. Yeah. Do you have a, um, a routine for writing? Uh, no, I'm absolutely useless at routine. I, you know, um, the the best the place where I do my best writing is Anna McCarrick, uh, the Tyrone Guthrie Centre, which is an artist's retreat um, in County Monaghan. And um, I was there just two weeks ago, but I had to leave early because I slipped and dislocated my kneecap oh. again. But um, I... Um, I do my best writing there because that is a place where you don't have to worry about cooking or shopping. It was um, a, a, a house, a kind of very beautiful stately home left to entrust to the state for the exclusive use of artists and writers and sculptors and dancers and poets and actors and artists of all kinds to practice their art and um uh, you pay um, a, a very reasonable amount to be very well looked after and very well fed in the most beautiful mm -hmm. surroundings. And it's a real privilege to be there. And you feel like when you're there that you are abusing that privilege by not writing. So when I go there, I think I do my best writing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This book, 
Our Little Cruelties came out in March. Yes. Uh, and then we're into <laughs> lockdown. So that yeah. can't have been very gratifying for you because when a book comes out, you you kind of, you tour with it, don't you, when yeah. you go to festivals? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would have been, I think, I, I the last one of the festivals I just struck out of the diary, the, the Iceland Noir Festival um, is an incredible festival that happens in Reykjavik every two years and that that just got cancelled last week so that was the last one of the year Uh, but um, yeah I think I cancelled 18 appearances and you know What was that like? Oh just so sad because I you know because as writers we're solitary people well our work is solid we're not solitary people we're very jolly sociable people (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> most of us um so uh taking that away from us uh took away our entire social lives um that the, those festivals are where you meet your readers mm. and your fellow writers and your interviewers and often I would be interviewing writers as well so often I'd be on both sides of the microphone interviewing writers um um being interviewed by writers, meeting the organisers and the festivals and the incredible volunteers and, you know, like all of those festivals, you know, they become like your summer holidays because mm-hmm. you go there every weekend. Mm-hmm. Dur- during the summer, they're almost every weekend or every second weekend. Mm-hmm. You could go from festival to festival to festival, mm-hmm. from, you know, from Listowel to Belfast. Thinking about the the festivals, uh, it's kind of like um, the reward after all the hard work is done, isn't it? And you were deprived of that with Our Little Cruelties and yet it's a bestseller. Yeah, well, also you get to to sell a lot of books there. So you lose out in those sales opportunities because people love to get books signed. So you lose out in those sales opportunities. And... um, uh, a lot of my book sales would have been through the airport. So because nobody was traveling, um, huge amount of my book sales would have disappeared mm-hmm. from the airport sales. Um, so, yeah, it's been a tough year. But, you know, I managed to stay in the top 10 for, I think, 15 or 16 weeks or Fantastic, something. Yeah. Do you love being a writer? Um, no, actually, no. Um, it's incredibly hard work, I have to say. Um, I I love, as Dorothy Parker says, said, um, I hate writing. I love having written. <laughs> <laughs> and that that sums up me. I find it torturous. Um, it's extremely hard work um you have to it's 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 really hard it's not it's not digging roads I'll give you that but it is extremely hard cerebral work because it's actually like making up a whole load of lies in your head and having to remember every single one and keep track of them <laughs> but especially when you're going backwards and forwards and timelines mm-hmm. which I tend to do yeah I'm trying not to do that in my next novel I'm trying to make it more linear um but uh yeah I it, it is 
extremely hard work and, you know, I will do almost anything not to open the laptop every day. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, once once I get into it, it's fine. Once I'm, I, once I'm actually at the laptop in the middle of a scene, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. But getting to that point every day is a struggle. I remember, every day. I remember Maeve Binchy uh, was asked what's the hardest part about being a writer and uh, her answer to a, a gathering was sitting down and pressing the on button on the computer. <laughs> yes. It's true, isn't it? She is so right. She is such, she was such a, a wise, incredibly wise, smart, worldly woman. Uh-huh. Oh, to be made, then she. Here's your chance to win a new Doro 7030 feature phone with access to WhatsApp and Facebook, designed specifically for seniors and available to buy in Vodafone stores or online. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. At Doro, they are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life without compromise. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a newly launched Doro 7030 handset is go to the website www.seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro phones, making technology easy for all. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Say hello to Independent Weekend Home Delivery. Save up to 40% with the Irish Independent and Sunday Independent delivered to your door every weekend. Plus, enjoy premium access to independent.ie and read our interactive e-paper edition all week long. All from just €5 per week. Search for Independent Home Delivery now. You've come to writing later in life than, um, than some others. Yeah. You were, you were working behind the scenes. Uh, yeah. But tell I, us about that. I was working, um, well, I, for a long time I worked in theatre as a stage manager. So I was working behind the scenes and learning a lot about how to put a scene together or, you know, depending on the production, how not to put a scene <laughs> together. But, um, uh, you know, when you're working... Um, with texts from the likes of Shakespeare or Chekhov or Ibsen or Tom Murphy or Frank McGuinness. You are learning from or Brian Friel or Marina Carr. I'm trying to mention some female playwright names now, Abby Spallon or Ali White. You know, you have to, you have to, um, you get very close to the text as a stage manager, because your eyes on the text all the time to make sure the actors are getting their lines right. So you are learning from the best unconsciously, subconsciously. So when I came to writing, um, I had learned an awful lot without even realizing it because I have no degree. I have no degree in English. I have no degree in anything. 
I left school and went to London. Mm-hmm. So um, I learned uh, from reading and then from working uh, behind the scenes in, in theatre, mm-hmm. mostly. Um, but you did television as well. You did. I, uh, you yeah. worked on Fair City and you also worked on Riverdance, am I right? I, yeah, I did two and a half years on Riverdance. Oh, I gosh. toured at Riverdance. Oh, nice. Yeah, I met my husband on Riverdance. Did you? Yes. Oh, the lot of we were, we were both backstage. I was a stage manager and he was working for Bill Whelan at the time. And uh, Bill Whelan invited Richard to come out to... Um, to uh, to to help with overseeing the opening of the Broadway show. So we met on Broadway. It was a totally, um, you know, lullaby was, Broadway. It was, a, it was a showbiz story. It was like 42nd Street. <laughs> a, lot of, just, a lot of relationships started with Riverdance. And I yeah. can't think of a better place than Broadway for yeah. you and uh, your husband yeah, and given your, your future career with the, the yeah, writing. yeah. And you know, and entertaining. It 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 comes into you know act, act, acting and the entertainment business mm-hmm. uh, come a lot or sorry appear a lot in our little cruelties. All of the family, in some way, is involved in show business, mm-hmm. including the mother, um, and the three sons in inveigle in their way into show business. One by complete surprise overnight, one who works really hard at it mm. and is ambitious and knows what he wants all along, and the other who kind of slides his way into it sideways because he's so jealous of the other two's success. Does that um, make it easier, the fact that you're writing about a world that you also worked in? Yes, I re- yeah, because that's a world I know. Now, I mean, there is a scene at the Cannes Film Festival, which I've never been to. There is a scene at the Oscars that I've never been to. But um, uh, I um, I took advice. So I talked to people who had been at the Oscars and I talked to people who had been at the Cannes Film Festival. And I... But there are also scenes at the Pope's Mass in 1979 that I did attend. Mm-hmm. There are scenes at the Bob Dylan concert in Slane in 1984, which I did attend. Uh, so um, there, there. It's, it's. I mean, it's a dark book. It's a dark story. Dark things happen, but it, 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 there are lighter moments. I mean, there are moments of frivolity and lightness. I mean, when you're not writing, what do you like to do? Netflix and chill. <laughs> Netflix and um, uh, read. I read an enormous amount. I mean. Uh, probably two books a week, maybe three books a week. Mm. Um, and I read broadly um, across genres. And now because because I write psychological thrillers, other publishers send me psychological thrillers so that I can write endorsement quotes for a lot of writers. So they are the bulk of what I get sent to read. But I also love a bit of Claudia Carroll, Sinead Moriarty, Marion Keys, you know, um, um, I also love John Banville, Sebastian Fox, mm-hmm. Sebastian Barry. Um, I love Donald Ryan. Um, I, you know, there, I, I, I read broadly across all genres. I, uh, I kind of, 
I always thought I was the kind of person who wouldn't like sort of fantasy weird things, but I read the most hilarious book, and it was the one that astonished me the most, High Fire by Owen Colfer this year. And I highly recommend, if you want a total laugh and okay. an escape, read High Fire by Owen Colfer, because it was the biggest surprise to me because it was a book that I didn't expect to enjoy. And it was one of the highlights of my reading year. You mentioned the fact that you have health issues. And mm. how are you at the moment? How are you in your mind, body and spirit, say? I was in hospital, uh, as I said, for mo most of last winter. And then I came out and then we went into lockdown and I wasn't able to access physiotherapy. And then by the time I was in July, um, I got going really well and I found a fantastic physiotherapist and he really, really helped me. And I thought I'm really getting back into the swing of things. I was off the crutches. I was walking every day and then bang, 10 days ago, I dislocated my kneecap again. And it's put me back to, I suppose, square two because I don't have to be hospitalized this time. I didn't break bones this time. Last time I smashed my patella and tibia, I think. But um, it just, it's just a drag because, um, but you know what? I recovered before and I will recover again. Um, it's just, it's just hard work because, you know, even up to last week, I was doing an hour and a half physiotherapy exercises every day and I was taking a lot out of me and I, you know, it's exhausting. Um, but... If I did it before, I can do it again. Liz, how do you maintain such a positive and optimistic approach? Well, what's the alternative? You lie down and go to bed and not try. You know, I think um, in life, life is what you make it. And um, if, you know, if you, if you have, if you have a disability or if you have something that's holding you back I think it's really not up it's not always up to the world to adapt to you it's up to you to adapt to the world as best you can mm -hmm. so I am going to continue walking for as long as I possibly can and um, there is a particular type of brain surgery that may be available to me next year which might really help so um, I'm Pinning my hopes on that I'll be a candidate for that and that that is successful. So That's to, I suppose, uh, combat the the accident that you had when you were a little yeah, girl. Yeah, hopefully th uh, there's a 70% chance that it could reverse some of the uh, damage that was done um, when I was seven years old. When you fell over old. the banisters. Yeah, when I fell over yeah. the banisters. Mm -hmm. So that would be a small miracle. Well, not a miracle. It would just be the hard work of doctors and medics and, you know, amazing technology and medical advances. Where would you like to see yourself, say, in five years' time? Oh, God. On the med somewhere. <laughs> like, in the sun. Um, with maybe a little cocktail and some friends uh, on a beach with a gang of friends reading our books and chatting and, 
you know, talking about, God, you remember that 2020? That really sucked, didn't it? <laughs> you know, but it's over now. And, you know, we're, we all survived. That's what I would like to think, that all of my friends and loved ones will survive this. You paint a lovely picture. It's something a lot of people would look forward to, I would imagine. And the book that you're working on uh, at the moment, is that advanced? Uh, No, I'm only 12,000 words into it. Mm. It's only at the beginning. I'm just establishing the central character. But she is, another thing I can say is that she is neuroatypical. I am not, um, I'm very wary of not labelling my characters as sociopaths or psychopaths or any kind of technical label because I have no background in psychiatry or psychology. So she, let's just say she doesn't think in the way that normal people think. She she has not been diagnosed as Asperger's or autistic or anything like that, but she does not behave Uh, And her attitudes are not the same as uh, everybody else. Okay, I can see the dark side of that. She's not not necessarily (laughs) as dark. She's not necessarily as dark. Yet. Uh, But her her past, all I say is her past is darker than she knows. Wow, gosh. It's, (laughs) It's so fascinating because you did say that when you sit down to write, you actually haven't worked out where the no. book is going to go. And it's no. it's true, listening yeah. to you describe yeah. this new book. Fair yeah. play. Well yeah. done. I don't know what's going to happen in the end. I can't wait to see what happens next. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Gosh, it's uh, it's fascinating. Um, and it's been so interesting talking to you, Liz. Thank you for giving us that insight into uh, these dark novels and the way you work and also the the warm you know engaging person that you personally are oh thank you thank you for making it so easy on me and for being as engaging as you are because really you know um the interviewee is only as good as the interviewer as i have found over the years so it was a real pleasure to talk to you really enjoyed having that conversation with Liz Nugent. I am fascinated by her ability to tunnel down into her character's human psyche and bring the cruel and foreboding elements of their personalities to the surface. This Senior Times podcast was produced by Simon Marta and engineered by Mark Murphy.